Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Well, welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Georgie Dinkoff, who is fresh back from Bulgaria and uh, going to give us some real updates and insights. I want to focus today on some controversial topics, certainly controversial in the traditional medical community, and that is uh, two big ones, actually. One is estrogen. And I have a number of friends that are natural medical physicians that give me a hard time about dissing estrogen. Uh, and they claim it's so good and that there was problems and flaws with the Women's Health Initiative study done about, you know, about a quarter century ago. I think the, the results were published maybe in 2000, 2001, and which was responsible for putting uh, the nail in the coffin of most estrogens and radically decreased it. But there's still big controversy about that. So we'll start with that. And then I want to progress into serotonin, which is another big myth and that serotonin is not is not the happy hormone that's responsible for causing depression. Although certainly Big Pharma would have you believe that as they have many, many, many SSRIs. I think uh, 25% is the last statistics I look, looked at of the women over 40 are taking SSRIs. So that really is something that needs to shift quite dramatically. And there's a, fortunately, there's a lot of good alternatives to that. So with all that preface, welcome. Thank you for joining us today, Georgie. Thanks for inviting me again. Happy to be here. Okay, well, let's start with your in insights on estrogen. Okay, so estrogen. Uh, old name for estrogen used to be adipin. Uh, adipin, A-D-I-P-I-N? Yes. That's right, exactly. And the reason they called this way is because it was known to be intimately involved in getting people and animals fat. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, for some reason, got conveniently forgotten around, I would say, the mid-50s. Um, mm -hmm. And then after that, uh, because the medical industry and the farm industry really started prescribing these synthetic estrogens, the most infamous of which is um, DES, which is diethylstilbestrol, caused... Uh, an innumerable amounts of fetal deaths, uh, malformations, cancers in the mothers that took it, and so on and so on, um, it, to the point where I think eventually there were even class action lawsuits. So the government withdrew it, banned its use uh, for humans. It's still used in in the in the veterinary industry, um, but yeah, to me that's one of the first uh, sort of like strong evidences that um, estrogen is is probably not as beneficial if you if you increase it either for too long or beyond a certain level of, of physiological dose. But the excuse at the time was, well, DES is not estrogen. That's true. It's a non-steroidal uh, kind of estrogenic chemical, but it does activate the estrogen receptors alpha and beta even more potently than, than estrogen does. And it has no other mechanism of action except its its estrogenic activities. Um, and then, uh, you know, of course, even mainstream doctors will, will admit that there is this thing called estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. The role of estrogen there is well known. Nobody's denying it. But the, the, the story has always been it's a localized only effect. It's a tissue specific effect. So if you look at the estrogen levels of menopausal women, and by the way, the, the risk of estrogen receptor positive breast cancer rises with age, they will say, well, it cannot be estrogen because estrogen in the blood is undetectable when we, when we tested menopausal women. However, if you take tissue biopsy, 
from the actual tumor or the breast tissue around it, you'll see that estrogen levels are sky high there. Um, wow. So begrudgingly, the medicine said, okay, yes, estrogen is involved as a causal agent in estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. However, this, this uh, effect is, is specific only to the breast. Uh, elsewhere, estrogen is really beneficial, and that's the reason why we're seeing uh, ovarian and uterine atrophy, uh, vulval atrophy in all these menopausal women, um, and we need to give more estrogen. So I think that's actually what kind of led to the Women Health Initiative studies. Um, there were these multi-decade, I think, trials in women that basically uh, tested in a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled fashion whether estrogen is really good for women or not. And the results were abysmal for estrogen. Um, you know, the groups that took estrogen, even in um, doses that will be even lower than what current, currently healthy young women think, take as a contraceptive, um, it, caught, it increased drastically the risks of heart attacks, strokes, the ischemic type, um, uh, also Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and really in cancers, actually, not just in the breast, but in every other reproductive, female reproductive organ as well. So it kind of gave a hint that estrogen is, is is carcinogenic, not only for the breast of postmenopausal women, but also for their uteruses, for their for the for the ovaries, um, uh, you know, for the for the vaginal canal, um, for also for the uh, endometrial, which is the lining of the of the uterus, um, and really that that kind of when the results were published, it poured very cold water. Um, on all of the people that were advocating hormone replacement therapy, HRT with estrogen for women. Um, and this continued, I mean, basically the the, the winter, the estrogen winter, because that's the term used in, in IT for uh, the AI winter, as they call it. In other words, the, the disuse or the declining use of estrogen as a therapy continued from about 2000, I would say 2002, until about 2015, when I started seeing studies come back again and say, no, these studies really, you know, um, um, vilified estrogen unjustifiably. It was all about how, how much you're given, the dosage, the timing. Um, you know, we could have done better, so we shouldn't really vilify estrogen. And little by little, I'm noticing that that basically estrogen has crept back into, into the HRT regimens that doctors are prescribing to all kinds of women, menopausal or not. Uh, but if you look at the at the cancer rates, both not just for breast cancer, but uh, for breast cancer, but for all of the reproductive uh, organs, the female ones, you will see that there was a drop in the deaths from these cancers in the period of over the last twenty years, and then that rate started going up, and not just up, but exponentially up over the last five or six years, which coincides perfectly with the gap, which is basically about I don't know fifteen years of really not using estrogen directly as, as uh, or at least on a mass scale. And then basically the big pharma coming back and saying, no, we want to use estrogen and started reintroducing it back into the, into the uh, treatment protocols. Um, so the, both the rates of death, uh, sorry, the rates of the cancers and the deaths from these cancers uh, plummeted over this 15 year period. And now it's back to actually exceeded what, what it used to be unbeknownst to most people. In 2001, I believe, and I still have the link, which has since been removed, but I took a PDF of it, uh, the National Institutes of Health declared estrogen as a known human carcinogen. Not probable, not possible, not likely, known human carcinogen. So this thing alone, to me, is sufficient to heavily discount considerations You know, if, some, if a doctor wants to use estrogen therapy in men or in women. Mm -hmm. uh, in, now it's an officially known human carcinogen. And when I talk to other doctors, they say, that's not true. I've never heard of this. But it's there. Check the register. It's the, it published in, even in the Federal Register. 
Um, so really, you know, if you look at estrogen uh, from a biochemical point of view, its role is to essentially heal wounds. If there's any trauma in any tissue, estrogen is the de-differentiating factor, which kind of reverts your, your differentiated cells in that specific organ or tissue that's been injured, sends them back to their kind of like stem cell-like condition. Uh, so they can grow and fill up or like replace whatever dead, dead or, or damaged tissue is there. And then the, the expectation is that there will be a pro-differentiation factor that will turn the activity of estrogen off. And that pro-differentiating factor in young, healthy people is usually progesterone for women um, and or androgens for males. Um, and it just so happens that these pro-differentiation factors decline with age, while the synthesis of estrogen never does. And that's probably another big myth that we need to address. Uh, talk to any doctor on the street, they'll tell you, no, menopause is a condition of both progesterone and estrogen severe deficiency. We've done countless tests in the blood, and we're seeing that estrogen levels and progesterone levels are undetectable. And that's kind of expected because most of the estradiol, which is in the blood, which is the main estrogen for, for both for, for males and females, and progesterone, they're uh, of so-called ovarian origin in females. So in other words, if the ovaries atrophy, uh, Yes, you will, you, you will expect to see declining levels of these steroids in the blood because the ovaries are not working so well, and in fact, eventually they fail. However, uh, another thing that's probably not very well known out there, even among doctors, is that every cell in the body expresses the enzyme aromatase and contains the machinery to synthesize its own estrogen from circulating precursors. And those circulating precursors are always there, usually cholesterol, which, by the way, rises with age, right? Um, so so that, would, that would imply that if we test tissues, even in menopausal women, we should see increase in estrogen, um, uh, especially in women that are having problems with their health, versus decrease, which is what's seen in the blood. And every test that I've seen biopsy done confirms that. Recently, in 2022, a, a Chinese group published a very large study with Chinese women where they measure uh, over 20 different hormones, their levels in hair. Um, and they came up with some really interesting results. In hair, which is kind of like a surrogate for what's going on in the tissues because hair it used to be uh, grew out of cells called follicular cells. And basically the levels of steroids in these cells are probably representative of what gets deposited into the hair. If you look at the estrogen levels of these women, which span all age groups, estrogen levels not only did not decline with age, they actually slightly increased. So there was no estrogen deficiency as far as hair testing is concerned in these 250 or even more Chinese women. Progesterone did decline, in fact, almost to undetectable levels. Thyroid hormone, the active portion, T3, also declined. Reverse T3 increased. Uh, and there was an inverse correlation between body mass index and the levels of either T3 and progesterone and positive correlation between body mass index and the levels of estrogen. So to me, that kind of gives you a, a very strong evidence that estrogen is really not what we're being told it is in the sense that you can take, you know, uh, freely administer it and, and you know, and basically it will restore youthfulness in all of these menopausal women. Uh, and another study that, that kind uh, of corroborates. Let, yes. let me let me hold here because I just want you. You are the hydrant. You provide <laughs> fire hydrant worth of information. So let's give people a pause here and we can kind of digest this because you presented so many concepts. So you'd said that the estrogen is undetectable in blood, but if you take tissue biopsies, you'll find it really elevated levels. And then you went on further to talk about the hair levels, which you'll also find it low. And I think you said that progesterone levels decline with age and they're not yes. in the tissues and they're not in the hair. Exactly. And, okay. Thanks for confirming that. And then you would know because you have a lab, you've 
constructed a lab to actually measure these items, not minerals. I, well, I guess you do, but you measure steroid hormones in the hair, right? Yes, 25 plus different steroids, including the not only estradiol, but also estrone and estriol, which together combine, uh, the three combined are basically all of your sort of active estrogens. There are other ones, but they have much weaker activity. But if you look at, if you take the estradiol being the strongest, estrone and estriol together, this kind of gives you your estrogenic profile. And we're, we're seeing the exact same thing as the Chinese group did. There is no decline of any of these estrogens with aging. In fact, if anything, there is an increase. Uh, so it's very difficult to, to to speak of estrogen deficiency, except in the blood, because, you know, at least in the follicular cells, there seems to be est estrogenic synthesis going on without any problem. But progesterone, which in most people, in females, is mostly synthesized in the ovaries and the brain, but the rest of the tissues cannot really synthesize it. While in males, it's most synthesized in the gonads, which is the female, the male version of the ovaries and the brain. So progesterone levels decline both in the blood and in the tissues, or in this case, in the hair. Estrogen does not. Estrogen is always there, always ready to come in and help. Actually, it's a helpful steroid if you are damaged and there is some repair needs to be done by triggering cellular division and growth. But that process needs to be turned off because that is the very essence of cancer. Yeah. And I remember there was a, a study came out, I think in 2015, one of the, uh, blanking on his name, one of the foremost ex experts in oncology in the world said, we've been thinking of cancer wrong. It's not trying to kill you. Cancer is simply a reversion to the cellular life that was on earth 2 billion years ago when the conditions simply did not allow for higher rates of metabolism to occur. So cancer is just the cell doing the bare minimum possible to survive, which means producing energy through very inefficient means, in other words, aerobic glycolysis, which is the Warburg effect. Right. And estrogen strongly, strongly, I emphasize, supports that primitive metabolism while turning off the oxidative phosphorylation. And it makes perfect sense for, for estrogen to do that because when you have to repair tissue, you can kind of, uh, you know, forego for a little bit the oxidative phosphorylation, but it always needs to come back because that is the differentiating factor. Stem cells continue and stay in their cancer metabolism, quote unquote, because it's really not cancer. It's just, just the way cells have to be in order to divide at the maximum rate possible with the minimum consumption of resources possible. But if you want to actually, this tissue to become human and to be an organ instead of just a blob of cells that consumes all your energy, you need to turn off that, that, that estrogen signal and either high metabolism and or progesterone and or thyroid, both of which are also pro-metabolic, are known as one the main differentiating factors in humans. Yes. All right. So clearly estrogen is anti-metabolic. It yeah. shuts down or radically reduces the ability of your mitochondria to create cellular energy in the form of ATP. So it's not good. And in many ways, in many, so many ways, I mean, you'd mentioned earlier that it's clearly associated with an increase in female reproductive cancers. Mm -hmm. But I, I think it's even broader than that. It appears to be associated with all cancers. And in so many ways, and I want you to go into this, is that it's similar to linoleic acid because both of these work in similar ways is that they're both anti-metabolic and they, they turn down the mitochondrial function. And interestingly, I was reading this in a Pete article recently, they tend to increase the amount of extracellular calcium into the cell to intracellular. Yeah. Yeah. And when the intracellular calcium goes up, that's responsible for increasing, increasing superoxide and nitric oxide. And those guys in, instantly, like in the tiniest fraction of a second, combine and form peroxynitrite, which is a really, really bad free uh, reactive nitrogen species that causes incredible damage in the cell. So that, that 
it seems like, and both of them seem to do that, which is interestingly, you know, I read that because that's exactly the, me- the proposed mechanism of how EMF causes damage in your cells, yep. increasing yep. intracellular calcium concentrations. Yep. Did you see that the discussion on Reddit? Uh, that happened like maybe six or seven no. years ago? No, there was... no, no, I'm not a Reddit follower. <laughs> well, I mean, they had an AMA, like an Ask Me Anything, and they invited this professor from University of Toronto uh, or University oh, of Waterloo. I... Yes. Uh, yeah, and, he, and basically he, they butcher him, but he yeah. kept saying, listen, all I'm trying to say, and I'm not saying this causes disease, but what is indisputable that in our experiments, exposure to EMF, even at uh, what you, you expect to get from your phone or even your router, uh, it basically increases intracellular calcium. And the main effect that we're seeing is decline in oxidative phosphorylation. Mm-hmm. Um, and the response of the group of the radio group was like, well, okay, so it's, it's just, just metabolism. Now that doesn't mean it's going to cause any structural damage, which is cancer, you know, Alzheimer's and so on. But now we have evidence actually the evidence has always been there, but our discussions are about the fact that if you interfere with the, with the usage of oxygen, the cellular usage of oxygen, specifically in regards to oxidative phosphorylation, eventually this will cause structural problems. And perhaps the most direct example, remember I sent you a study uh, the last time we exchanged emails about the reduced versus the oxidized ubiquinone, ubiquinone mm-hmm. versus ubiquinone. Um, in the cell, all that is required for complex one of the electron transport chain to be dismantled physically is a drop, basically a shift of the redox state towards reduction. Uh, and that means increasing ubiquinol and reduction of ubiquinol. So declining metabolism or shifting the, the redox state towards reduction causes structural changes directly into the cell. And I think that's the part that that once doctors accept that, that, that functional issues can cause structural ones, and of course, we know the other is opposite is also true, then I think the picture of cancer in many of these degenerative diseases st- starts to become much clearer. Uh, you don't need genes for that. There may be for some diseases, but you don't need genes because simply interfering with metabolism is enough to prevent your body from maintaining its proper structure. Yeah. And, and the complexes, in complex one, you have NAD yeah. primarily, and then complex two is FAD. Yep. And I think three is ubiquinone. Is that correct? Yes. And then four is cytochrome C oxidase. And since yes. you mentioned nitric oxide, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's basically uh, its primary anti-metabolic effect is the fact that it forms a covalent bond with cytochrome C oxidase. So it, it kind of turns it off in a very bad way. Unless you knock that bond, break that bond, which methylene blue and magnesium are known to do, uh, but we don't know how efficiently. The only way to restore the functioning of that cell is if that cell synthesizes, creates a new complex four, but it cannot do that since it needs energy. So it's a catch-22, uh, really bad situation. So nitric oxide is a very, very potent metabolic inhibitor. Uh, in my book, it it ranks right up there with something called rotenone, which is the classic one used to inhibit complex one. Mm-hmm. And in the studies that have compared them both, they seem to be equally bad for the organs uh, for which the rotenone is known to be bad. Liver, um, the the spleen, the reproductive function, the brain especially. Rotenone is a known causal agent of Parkinson's disease, and it's used as a reliable causative agent to, to create a Parkinson model in animals. It's known to do it in humans too, because they've been, um, you know, uh, sort of called ambient exposure to rotenone because it's a herbicide. So it's known that it can cause it in humans too. It's just not used directly because it's, it's unethical. So let's get back to uh, estrogen again. Do you agree with the fact that it increases cancer overall, all types of cancer, not just female reproductive cancers? All types of cancer. There is a very famous cancer called estrogen receptor negative breast cancer. In fact, triple negative breast cancer. That medicine says it it expresses no steroidal receptors. Uh, Steroid therapy should not work on that cancer. 
Well, guess what? Recent studies came out, showed that if you administer an androgen, which, by the way, is a known estrogen antagonist, then the androgen administered was dihydrotestosterone, the yes. very evil steroid, yes, uh, actually caused immediate uh, regression and reversal of the cancer cells to normal. Then they used another chemical, which is known as a glucocorticoid antagonist, known as RU486, caused the exact same regression in in, uh, in the cancers. Uh, so clearly these... these uh, uh, these cancer cells are, are receptive to steroidal modifications, and they may not have the steroidal receptors, uh, but it doesn't mean that, that stero steroids are known to have so-called non-genomic effects. And it just so happens that estrogen, when you administer it to even non-estrogen receptor positive cells, it stimulates their growth. While if you administer anti-estrogenic or in this case anti-cortisol substances as well, then then the cancer cell the cancer cells revert back to their normal metabolic phenotype. Um, so this to, to me heavily implicates estrogen. Estrogen is also a reductant. And like I said before, reduction simple, it, basically just a simple shift of the redox state towards reduction is enough to start causing negative structural changes in the electron transfer chain complex. Yeah. So it would seem that for treatment of almost all cancers and probably most resistant obesity, that using a strong potent uh, androgen that is resistant to aromatization like DHT mm -hmm. and a cortisol blocker like RE46 or mifepristone would be a useful strategy. The problem is though, those are difficult to get. I was looking at, because I, I was considering using mifepristone, but it's hard, really yeah. hard to find, even at, at almost all regular conventional farmers. What is, what, do you have any strategies for finding that? Uh, I do a strategist, but I, I've noticed that it disappeared over the last five years. After before that, it was widely available because at least uh, both both of the, these steroids are widely used by the bodybuilding community. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, you know, uh, over the last five years, I found I noticed that all of the Western chemical companies simply either stop offering the RU486 DHE is considered a DA control chemical, so that's a separate story. It's available, but it's, it's still harder to get. But it used to be my Fepristone was easier to get than DHT. Now it's the other way around. Now my Fepristone mm -hmm. is completely gone. I don't know. It's because of the, all the studies that have been coming out with, with RU486. A couple of really remarkable case studies. Uh, an end-stage terminal pancreatic cancer patient uh, went to the hospital and said, uh, found one of the studies that I did, and it's really told the doctors, listen, I'm not interested in, in, in any of your therapies. I'm about to die. Give me this drug. So they, the doctors applied to the FDA for compassionate, I think it's compassionate case approval, whatever yeah, it's called. Use. Yes. Uh, FDA said, sure, go ahead. So they had a limited supply in the hospital, gave him 100 milligrams of mifepristone daily. The cancer regressed. And the guy was alive for three years, even though he was expected to die within two months. Uh, and then basically the supply ran out. FDA said, no more. Uh, we just you know, can't continue with this. You proved your case. Now go ahead and die, please. I mean, they didn't say that, but basically that's that's what happened. They they, they stopped his uh, RU486 uh, uh, supplies and asked him, do you want to go on chemotherapy and radiation? Because now the tumor has regressed and it's actually treatable. He said, no, leave me alone. And then he died. But then there's also another case, basically, of RU486 uh, stopping triple negative breast cancer in, in, a, in a human female. Um, so a number of different case studies. And I'm starting to think that pharmaceutical companies are starting to really hoard up on their supplies of that chemical. 
probably an expectation of getting some kind of emergency use authorization because the legal landscape, as you well know, changed dramatically since the pandemic. Now, yeah. a lot of pharma companies are saying, oh, we don't have to go through these 10-year trials. Who has $2 billion to spare on something that may or may not work? Let's just try it out on a few on people and see if it works. But you need the actual chemical. So long story short, my, the only sources that I know is either my lab that can synthesize it or... Um, uh, uh, there's another company in Europe that still, still seems to sell it, but wants an actual uh, proof that, that it's going to be used for medical purposes. And then, of course, the infamous Chinese sources, which, by the way, have also dried up. Um, I wow. used to work for at least four or five different suppliers over there. They all had RU486. Now, now only one of them has it and only does it, will synthesize it if we actually ask for it. They don't. They, they claim to not have it in stock. So wow. something's going on regulatorily or financially. And I, I, my guess is that the potential of RU486 is being recognized. Um, and whoever whoever is going to come uh, approach the FDA and say, hey, give me approval for X, Y, and Z condition is probably hoarding up um, on, on that drug. Now, just to give a little backstory on RU486, it is primarily was developed as a cortisol blocker. That was its primary function. But the people who developed it, they determined they couldn't really sell a lot of it because that's a very limited indication. So they also found out that it blocks progesterone. I think it's progesterone. Progesterone, yeah. Yeah, so you have to, you don't have to, but if you're going to give it to block cortisol, you really, really need to supplement with with progesterone. So uh, because it will block both and it'll, you know, having adequate levels of progesterone is is truly, is really the hormone that most women need. It is not estrogen, it's progesterone and pregnenolone. So I'm wondering if we can dive into the practical aspects of this, because you you made it very clear, RU46 and uh, what was the other? Oh, DHT. DHT. Really, really difficult to find. Uh, But, you know, if you're in in the weeds with a severe problem is certainly worth exploring but for most people it is not going to be easy even for someone like me so the practical thing that almost everyone needs to adopt is to make sure make sure that your levels of progesterone and pregnenolone are, are okay now is are those hormones is the the test in the blood are they sufficient or do you need to go to a tissue analysis like hair uh, I would say it depends on the age. I mean, uh, after a person, you know, is over fifty, uh, so to speak, the levels of progesterone and DHEA decline in both in both sexes. Um, mm-hmm. It's a well-known decline. In fact, they have different ranges based on how old you are when you go and do the test. But I, I think the ranges should not be adjusted according to the age. They should mm-hmm. actually stay to to the levels that that you know, optimal you know, health, right? Exactly, which is what, what you, whatever you had in your twenties. In fact, uh, the cortisol to the DHA ratio is now known, whether in blood or tissue or hair or nail, has now been established as the single most reliable predictor of all-cause mortality and morbidity throughout the entire lifespan. Um, and what, what should that ratio be? Less than 0.5? Less, less than less than 0.3. In other words, okay. heavily in favor of, of DHEA. Anything over 0.5 is, no, is known to start causing at least mood disturbances. In other words, cortisol corroboration that it can cause depression. Anything over one, you're probably at risk of diabetes or cardiovascular disease or worse. Okay, perfect. And then progesterone, uh, that's something that's not even discussed in the medical books anymore, but the older studies would have demonstrated that it's actually perhaps the, the main endogenous and most direct and, and potent glucocorticoid receptor antagonist. So progesterone is really kind of like RU486, but without blocking your progesterone receptors. 
Um, so, you know, it really needs to maintain the, the levels optimum. And as you said, uh, either can be taken preform or you can take pregnenolone. However, the wait, conversion- wait, 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 stop there because I'm confused. Did you say progesterone was a cortisone, a cortisone blocker? Yes, it, it is a cortisone blocker. Yes. Because you said glucocorticoid receptor. So it's blocking cortisol. Yes. It is. Wow. But it is, it's not as effective as RE46, is it? Uh, I would say it, it uh, you know, mil, pound, pound for pound or milligram for milligram, it's about as effective as RE46. Wow. It has wow. the same, well, that's, same that is really, really good news because progesterone is really easy to get. But however, I used to use it in the 90s after I read a book by John Lee, who was a physician in California. He's since passed. He was widely... Uh, responsible for wide, the widespread adoption of that, but he was using a cream and there are definitely complications with using a cream, at least a traditional cream. And, and so the key is to, to get that molecule into the blood and not develop resistance transdermally. So why don't you walk us through the ideal way to get progesterone and pregnenolone? So progesterone, I mean, if you're going to take progesterone orally, it better be taken with, um, you know, ideally a combination really of either of something very lipophilic, that can avoid going through first pass metabolism. Mm-hmm. Um, and the long chain fatty acids, of course, preferably saturated or at least monounsaturated with carbon, uh, with chain length of, of 14 carbon atoms or more uh, are ideal for that because they've been shown to be mostly absorbed through the lymphatic system, which then basically circulates and eventually gets drained into the systemic circulation through something called the thoracic duct. Um, so this way you're avoiding first pass metabolism through the liver and liver. If you actually, if you, if you don't avoid the first pass metabolism, you're going to waste about 85% of 85%. the progesterone you're taking. And yeah. let's just get specific. You, you said a long chain fatty acid longer than 14 yeah. carbons. So that would be something like butter, butter, you, olive, oil. olive yeah. oil, or, you know, we're not a big fan of olive oil, but in small doses, it's okay. But you, this means you do not want to do with coconut oil because coke, co- the vast majority of the the carbon chains in coconut oil is below 14. I mean, yeah, 14 C12 is, is the max, I think. And then yeah. there is a tiny amount of palmitic acid, which is C16, but it's yeah. a very small amount. So mostly medium chain triglycerides, which are going to go through the por- through the por- portal vein. Now, coconut oil is very good for enhancing transdermal absorption. So mm-hmm. if you want to try that, maybe mix, just a, just make an emulsion of a little bit of progesterone and coconut oil and rub it on your skin. I think I think it will work quite well. Uh, but the, the the transdermal absorption for most people is limited and it, it, it and it's very slow. So even, it's even less if than optimal. Less yeah, than optimal. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And Ray, I think it's Ray Pete's company. He put a Progest LA uh, co- uh, compilation or uh, product that is a combination of progesterone and vitamin E. Yeah, Progest E, and basically the progesterone is is dissolved in the vitamin E, which if you look at its structure. Um, it's similar to, and it absorbs very similarly to very long chain saturated fatty acids. In other words, it goes mostly through the lymphatic system. Uh, and if I, if I understand correctly, because I've asked him, of course, he doesn't it, it, it disclose the exact composition, but it's about 90% to co- mixed to cofferols, which is the vitamin E part, and about 10% long chain fatty acid triglycerides, saturated ones. So that's really the the product, and you can vary the the ratio of tocopherol to the fatty acids because some people find that higher concentrations of tocopherol, when taken orally, can irritate their their gut. Uh, it's a w- well known side effect of, of vitamin E, uh, but this can be avoided if you dilute the 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 tocopherol uh, you know progesterone combination with a little bit of more oil. Uh, however, there is some evidence that the less tocopherol remains, 
the more it's the the more uh, the 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 long the bigger the risk that uh, higher portions will go towards the portal weight. So the the core flow is important there. Um, I find that one to one ratio works perfectly fine, and it doesn't cause irritation in the GI tract. Yeah, I think you just had some posts on your blog. I think they're the most recent posts about how that product is particularly useful. Maybe that's not the specific product, but the combination of vitamin D and progesterone at, at transporting that into the brain. And also, yes, and 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 kind of confirming what Dr. Peter had said, I would say 40 years ago when he actually first filed the patent for progesterone in, in vitamin E, in that patent, he describes vitamin E as a very, very strongly brain protective nutrient. Um, and this study demonstrated, uh, discovered by accident, that basically, that if you combine, uh, if you dissolve some brain protective substances into coferol, or at least mix them with the coferol and administer That would be them, progesterone, progesterone. Yes, progesterone. Yeah, the one, but they use something else. But I'm saying uh, in my blog, yeah. I, I said progesterone is the natural yeah. thing that to try. Um, then not only targets preferentially the brain, but it seems to go directly to the area that has been damaged by, in that case, stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you can, this means you can actually increase in selectivity and specificity while re- reducing the concentration needed simply because you're directly targeting the actual damaged area. That, that That's incredible and very unique because you can, it means that if progesterone or pregnenolone are dissolved in vitamin E, uh, you can actually increase their effects on the brain and, and you'll be focusing on the area that's been damaged. And both pregnenolone and progesterone has been used uh, for things like traumatic brain injury, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson, mostly in animal trials, but now some human trials as well, specifically for progesterone. But from what I see, the formulations there, none of them use vitamin E, they just use peanut oil, which means peanut oil and progesterone, there's a product on the market called Promet- Prometrium, mm-hmm. um, and it's been shown to have no more than 12 to 14% systemic bioavailability. So you are using more than 85% of the progesterone. Worse than that, when it's even when when you have the systemic bioavailability of let's say twelve to fourteen percent, the half life is only about forty minutes. So that progesterone disappears. So you want something in, and tocopherol is great in that respect because tocopherol's half life is about forty eight hours, which means that if you take the tocopherol, the progesterone dissolved in tocopherols, you actually circulate in the bloodstream. You will have the same half life or similar to tocopherol, which means two days. It means it doesn't you don't have to take it every day. Um, if you discover a dosage that works for you, you can take it every other day or every two days, whatever works best. So it's really, you know, uh, uh, a okay, very well, good invention. Well, let's get, into the, let's get into the specifics because that's where it counts. So the progest D can be taken. Uh, ideally, you say don't dilute it. You could, but there's a chance that you're going to decrease the absorption. And how would you, how many drops? I mean, it comes in a one ounce bottle. Yeah. How many drops would you say, and where do you apply it? You apply it under the tongue, on the buccal mucosa, on the on your cheeks, and then and then uh, what's the frequency? And what are the do you, do you suggest or encourage any monitoring just to make sure you're in the target window, or do you do you do you just look at your clinical symptoms and and judge the dosing by how you feel? Well, it really depends on what it's being used for, but uh, the uh, as far as the, the the dosage, how it's taken, uh, it depends on the part of the project. I think it has about four milligrams of progesterone per drop. Mm-hmm. Um, and a physiological dose for a young, uh, healthy child before they actually reach puberty is about 30 milligrams of progesterone daily. Another thing that most people don't know is that the both males and females pr- produce equal amounts of progesterone before they hit puberty. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's probably one of the reasons why their sexual dimorphism is not as highly expressed in children, simply because the, before they hit puberty, the, they, they produce very similar kind of, uh, you know, the, uh, they have a very similar hormonal profile. Anyways, 30 milligrams uh, seem, seems to be a, a decent dosage uh, prophylactically. In fact, I think for, for some people may even be too high. 
Um, I've seen people with very bad cases of rheumatoid arthritis where basically all of their joints are swollen and they can barely move. Um, uh, improve in a matter of hours from either 20 to 30 milligrams taken orally, and you can rub it on the on the mucosa or on your gums. Uh, but the good thing about the cofer is that even if you just directly ingest it, you'll still be getting mostly the systemic effects. In other words, you'll be avoiding the uh, the, the first pass effect. But if you rub it on your gums or or, or on the inside of the the the, the, the buccal uh, so-called approach on the inside of your cheeks, because the mucosa there is so thin, I think the effects are much more rapid. So if you want mm -hmm. a very rapid effect within a minute or two then rubbing on the gums or putting under the tongue or rubbing on the inside of the cheeks, I think is the way to go. If you don't care that, that much about the, the, the fastness of the effect, then I think taking orally uh, is, is is fine and probably most people prefer it that way. Okay, good. So are there any specific symptoms that one should look for to, to recognize that you're getting close to the optimal dose and frequency? I would say uh, because progesterone is a strong sedative. In fact, several derivatives of progesterone are still used in the veterinary medicine as as general anesthetics. Uh, and there were a few of them that were developed for human use as well, but they caused, uh, and I still haven't found those studies that claim that, I mean, the, the studies claim they caused some kind of side effects, but I, but I haven't been found to find what kind of side effects they cause. It's just a rumor. Anyway, so so progesterone is a strong sedative. Um, so once you start getting to a point where you basically you're getting disorientation, like mm -hmm. slowing of the of the thought or speech and getting sleepy, you've probably overdone it a little bit. Now, by overdone, I mean, if you want to be functional and it's in the middle of the day, you probably don't want to be sedated, right? Or operating machinery and whatnot. In fact, <laughs> a hefty dose of progesterone causes symptoms indistinguishable from being drunk. Oh, and an wow. interesting side story uh, uh, because it's a GABA agonist and, oh. and a, a company in England and actually American company, but now working in England is trying to do is already has already released on the market, an alcohol substitute, which consists of nothing but GABA, the actual gamma amino butyric acid. Mm -hmm. So taking progesterone mimics that very closely. So in other words, if you take a, a hefty enough dose, you will be legally drunk. Actually, you will legally right. be drunk. So don't operate machinery when, when you're taking a lot of progesterone. No, then that clearly the dosing is take it before you go to bed or maybe an hour before you get it, go to bed because GABA itself, an amino acid, which is a neuroinhibitory trans, neuro, an inhibitory neurotransmitter is magnificent for sleep and weaning people from SSRIs. It, and we're going to talk about that in a bit when we transition to serotonin, but it, it never occurred to me that for, for, I didn't realize that progesterone was a potent GABA agonist. So it would seem that would be useful to use with a GABA supplement. Yeah. And actually you can probably get away by using much lower doses of either one when you combine them together. Uh, and the strongest GABA agonist in the body, slightly stronger than progesterone, they're actually pretty close in terms of affinity for GABA, is something as a progesterone derivative, in other words, a metabolite known as allopregnanolone. Mm -hmm. um, and it was recently approved by the FDA for postpartum depression. That's right. It's uh, just That was earlier this year. Yep. And now a company is developing an oral formulation exactly through the methods that you and I discussed with the long-chain fatty acids called LYT-300. Uh, and now they're applying to the FDA for clinical trials for post-traumatic stress disorder, um, for, uh, for, for psychosis, for sleep disturbances, for anxiety. And all of these things, GABA is known to relieve. So they're saying... Oh, we have the very potent, the most potent endogenous GABA agonist here, allopregnanolone. Let us try for all these conditions. But I, we can say, well, you don't have to go and get allopregnanolone yeah. because it's a prescription. Okay. You can do it progesterone, maybe slightly oh. higher dosage, but still in the same ballpark. So taking the 30 milligrams of progesterone will convert significant to a significant amount of allopregnanolone. Allopregnanolone, yes. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a good one. I think that 
has some anti-cancer benefits too, doesn't it? Yes, uh, and and uh, uh, which also confirms the fact. And GABA is actually a known strong pro-differentiating factor, um, and it's also known to enhance oxidative phosphorylation and inhibit excessive glycolysis. All of these things are basically the hallmarks of cancer. In, in other words, excessive glycolysis and low oxidative phosphorylation. Uh, I think Dr. Pete mentioned about, about very old studies about the injecting GABA directly into tumors and causing complete regression in a matter of days. Wow. So yeah, cancer cells are very excited. And one of the reasons is that extra calcium that they're actually uh, increasing the uptake of under the influence of estrogen and a lot of other factors. So yeah. GABA acts in a way opposite to calcium and in a very in a way very similar to magnesium. In fact, magnesium was known as the old GABA agonist before they discovered GABA directly. Wow, wow. Yeah, and magnesium is also something that I became obvious when I was studying the EMFs is a, is a supplement to take to mitigate EMF yep. uh, complications because it limits calcium influx into the cell. Yep. Yep. So would it be safe to assume that preg, uh, progesterone uh, or progest uh would, since it's a, such a potent cortisol blocker, would also be useful for the treatment of obesity and restoring um, metabolic dysfunction, mitochondrial metabolic dysfunction related to like a low carb diet? Obviously the solution is to get back in some carbs, but would it be right. helpful in the short term? Um, unfortunately, all the studies that I have with high dose of progesterone for obesity are, are in animals simply because medicine currently doesn't believe progesterone should help with obesity. In fact, they're saying it's causing it. However, if you look at the evidence for IU486 and assuming cortisol is just as effective, uh, progesterone is just as effective cortisol blocker, there is a study with uh, women with Cushing syndrome um, mm -hmm. they're overproducing cortisol and they invariably very, very obese. They have the mm -hmm. typical Cushing phenotype, central obesity, very thin limbs, loss of muscle mass, which is well known that the cortisol can cause. And about 60% of them severe clinical depression, which cortisol is now also known to cause. So RU486 not only led to the weight loss, to a weight loss and normalization of all of their mental symptoms, the weight loss was sustained. So in other words, after their cortisol went back to normal, or at least their, their cortisol activity, since the, the IU-46 doesn't lower synthesis of cortisol, it lowers, it blocks its effects. After they, they got restored to a normal glucocorticoid sensitivity of receptor state, their weight loss remained. And they the, in order for them to lose the weight while taking the drug, they didn't do any dietary or exercise modifications. They just kept eating and living uh, normally, I mean, it, they continued their current regimen. They didn't go on a diet. They didn't start exercising more. All they did was took a cortisol blocker and that led to a repeat sustained weight loss. So it's not that difficult to lose weight. It's difficult to maintain it as everybody who's ever been on a diet or an exercise regimen knows, especially those people in the biggest loser show. Biggest losers, yes, yeah. absolutely. So let's finish up on pre progesterone and pregnenolone and then transition over to serotonin. So the progest -E, Dynamite, it works, no question. Uh, we'll seek to put a link to that in this article. But are there other forms of progesterone? Like, I don't know that it's available as a powder. I mean, many of these supplements are. I mean, you could buy DHEA and uh, pregnenolone easily online, but I don't ever remember seeing progesterone as a powder. I mean, it comes as creams and stuff. Yeah, so I haven't seen powder. There, you've never seen the powder? Nope. I haven't. Yeah, so is there are there any other formulations that you would recommend or is it just progest so, I mean, you can make your own, like, I mean, th there's some other people now selling progesterone in, in vitamin E, uh, trying to mimic Dr. Pete's formulation, but I wanted to add a little bit in regards to weight loss. Another steroid, which is also a known potent anti-glucocorticoid is DHEA. 
Uh, with mm -hmm. DHEA, we do have human trials. And in fact, there are two or three of them that are really remarkable, but they used absolutely massive doses, which I under no circumstances right. recommend. Uh, I think they use 1,600 milligrams oh of DHEA gosh. daily. That's, That's ridiculous. Yeah, but it, but it led to a 30%, 36% reduction of central fat uh, in humans. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, with such a massive dosage, uh, because DHA is a very reliable precursor to estrogens, you're expected to massively increase the, the synthesis of estrogens. However, if you combine it with progesterone, not only both will synergize for the blocking of the cortisol receptor, progesterone is also an aromatase inhibitor. So oh. depending on the dosage, it will greatly prevent the, the conversion of DHEA into, into estrogen. And as far as dosages, of course, like I said, that's really an insane dose. I like physiological doses. And for most people, that is between 10 to 12 milligrams of DHEA daily. That's how much you produce when you're young, when, you, when you're mid-20s, and, and then after it declines. So if you're still producing DHEA, you can, which you can verify on blood tests, you can calculate the delta between what the optimal interval was when you were, let's say it was the levels, the optimal levels were 500, and now you're in your 60s, and now the range says, oh, you're fine, but your levels are 200. So the, the delta is about, I don't know, what, 60%? So mm -hmm. you need to take 60% of that of the daily dose that you used to be producing when you were in your 20s. So 60% of, I don't know, 12 milligrams uh, is what you really need to be taking in order to restore the levels to the youthful levels without running into that risk of, um, of really uh, raising estrogen too much. And if you combine it with progesterone, you should be getting an even stronger anti-cortisol effects uh, while further preventing its conversion of the DHA into estrogen. Yeah, so along those lines, is it true that if you aromatize DHA, which means you can increase your estrogen, wouldn't that increase prolactin? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So that's, that's, you should be very careful. It, it, and yeah. if in fact, there are studies showing, I mean, both animals and humans, that if you administer too high of a DHA dose, prolactin reliable rises, which is unmistakable sign of estrogenicity. Yeah, because I'm, I'm personally struggling with that. My prolactin level is a lot higher than I would like. So, but it didn't occur to me that progesterone is a really good strategy to, to halt aromatization because it, is it really the aromatized uh, uh, androgenic steroids that are responsible for increasing? prolactin or is it another route uh so so, so there's always there's uh, some myths in the in the bio in the in the bodybuilding community uh all the steroids that are raising prolactin are either convertible into estrogen such as let's say nandrolone uh nandrolone is actually an estrained steroid its core is is uh, 18 carbon atoms and so is estrogens so it's a it is an anabolic androgenic steroid, but it gets converted into estrogen much more easily than even testosterone. So if you take in androlone, it's perfectly natural to expect that your prolactin levels will rise. Non-aromatizable androgens usually do not raise prolactin. In fact, they lower it. DHT is approved in several countries for treating gynecomastia, um, and which is well known to be caused by high prolactin because the approved treatment in most countries, including the United States, is bromocryptin, which is an anti-prolactin medication. So DHT does not increase prolactin. In fact, it lowers it. However, there are other non-aromatizable steroids, such as trembolone, which is known to increase prolactin. And it's always been a mystery as to why. Well, if you look at the structure of, of trembolone, it is also an estrained steroid. So the core is estrogenic, and it also has three double bonds. So it actually, structurally, it's not very different from estrogen. And just based on its geometric structure, it is expected to activate uh, the estrogen receptors, which probably explains why trembolone and other non-aromatizable non steroids can increase prolactin. But things like dihydrotestosterone and its derivatives do not, and in fact, lower it.
Yeah, it has more double bonds than linoleic acid. Yes. No, DHC has no double bonds, right? No double bonds. Fully saturated. So does so does allopregnanolone. And in general, the saturated, fully saturated steroids, being lipids as well, they tend to have a calming, prometabolic, relaxing effect, while the unsaturated ones tend to make you feel the same way linoleic acid does, uh, hyper and, and agitated. And, and you know, and if you like you have a lot, of, a lot of energy, but you're really running on cortisol. Okay, so progest is the way to go. Let's just finish this up with pregnenolone and then we'll shift into serotonin and GABA, which is a solution, I believe. Uh, so pregnenolone is, I'm assuming the dose is oral. I mean, you can do, I, I actually do a suppository and I do it in cacao butter, which is a very long chain fat. So it facilitates the absorption past the lip, bypassing the liver as a rectal suppository. But I think that about a hundred milligrams is the way to go with the pregnenolone mostly. And then uh, you could do it rectally, but it's a hassle to create the suppository. And most people do not, are absolutely not fond of doing a rectal suppository. So you could take it, just swallow a hundred milligram pill. Sure. As long as you take it a half a teaspoon, a teaspoon of butter, what, what what's the dose? Half a teaspoon of butter is fine. Just mix them together. So they make an emulsion. You know, you don't have to dissolve. Oh, it. So you can't swallow it. You have to actually open the pill and, and mix it around in the butter. Now you can swallow the pill, but of course it's going to have less effectiveness than if the powder is easily is is well emulsified okay. with the powder. Uh, that, that's a yeah. see the devil's in the details for yeah. sure. I, I've been I've I've been incorrectly recommending that. I didn't realize it needs to be mixed in with the butter. So do that, and you had a really good strategy. So is the dose about 100 milligrams, or do you recommend? Yeah, I think for most people, uh, this this seems to be a pretty good dosage. Some some human trials just came out this year. Uh, with two different doses, 300 milligrams and 500 milligrams. And both doses were shown to uh, block cocaine cravings and addiction and also block alcohol addiction and, and, and cravings. Really remarkable studies with a 300 dosage being more effective for some reason. Um, so so 300 dose, so if you don't want to take 100 milligrams, you can try the 301. But 100 milligrams seems to be okay to restore uh, your steroidogenic balance back to normal. Um, and pregnenolone is really unique in the, in the sense that if you have an excess of a specific steroid, it will likely lower it. And if you have a deficiency of a specific steroid, it will probably raise it. Some of the earliest studies with pregnenolone were done by uh, uh, Dr. Uh, what's his name? Hans Selye in Canada, mm -hmm. um, sure. who, who basically who coined the term general adaptation syndrome. Um, in other words, you know, the, the, the non-specific disease of being sick. You're looking sick, you're acting sick. Anyway, so he, he removed the adrenal glands of animals and did experiments with different steroids and found out that both, both pregnenolone and progesterone can partially fill in for cortisol. Well, of course, they're precursors. Uh, but also, if the if the of the uh, in the opposite direction, if the rats are keeping their adrenal glands, but they're being stressed, in other words, their cortisol is high, uh, pregnenolone and progesterone lower the excess cortisol back to normal. So they're really great modulators, is what I like to call them. Um, and then pregnenolone, about 100 milligrams, is probably enough because it's going to convert downstream, being the top level hormone, is going to convert downstream. Um, into whatever you need. Um, I don't know of many studies with 100 milligrams. I know some that show 30 milligrams block the sedating effects of benzodiazepines and alcohol. Um, and then I know of a study with schizophrenia where 50 milligrams decrease significantly both the symptoms of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And then the dosages further beyond that that I've seen are 300 and 500 milligrams. But I don't see... You know, I think pregnant 100 milligrams sounds about right if you look at how many steroids you're synthesizing downstream of each type and you add all these up and it gets to about 100 milligrams of a precursor such as pregnant
Okay. So we know that progesterone converts to allopregnenolone. Yes. Does pregnenolone convert to allopregnenolone? Yes, by first converting to progesterone. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that's clever. So it, let's transition to serotonin. Uh, and we can use what we've already talked about to do that transition, which is GABA. So GABA, serotonin is not the happy hormone. It's actually making huge problems. It used to be called enteramine. It was produced in the gut. Like I didn't, adipin was estrogen's name. I never knew that. Uh, so it was in called enteramine before serotonin. And it has a lots of problems. And I'm going to let you elaborate on that. But but clearly one of the ways, the most powerful ways to treat depression and insomnia, because so many people are not just taking antidepressants, they're on anti-hip or hypnotics, mm -hmm. which are sleeping pills. And, and they may be on benzos like Xanax or Restoril, Ambien, you know, so these are toxic, toxic drugs are a long time. They, and they actually, yeah, they help you go to sleep, but you know, your sleep is radically impaired. So the solution for these, the, the antidepressants and the, the sleeping pills and the anti-anxiety agents would be GABA, yep. simple GABA. And, and as you wonderfully uh, elucidated earlier is progesterone because progesterone is a GABA agonist. So you can take progesterone with GABA and get a great result. So I believe you told me or you, you directly, or it was on one of your posts that it was previously thought that GABA, which is an amino acid, was not thought to cross the blood-brain barrier, but mm -hmm. I think you uncovered studies that shows that it does. So if you can confirm that, and what dosing do you recommend? I mean, it usually comes as 500 milligrams, and uh, you know, especially elaborate on the dosing with respect to those who are in the process of weaning off of their dangerous medications. So the, the proof, I mean, probably the official proof, even though there have been isolated studies that oral GABA is bioavailable, uh, medicine claims it's not. Uh, and I think you could re immediately realize why. If oral GABA is bioavailable, the, overnight, the entire industry of, at the very least, anti-anxiety medication goes away. They're all GABA agonists, right? <laughs> so clearly this is a big threat. Anyways, the study that actually, uh, not the study, but the final confirmation that oral GABA is bioavailable is that company that I mentioned just a, a half an hour ago that's that's now selling the alcohol replacement. So mm -hmm. the main effects of alcohol that, that most people like are because alcohol is a GABA agonist. GABA agonist, right. <laughs> so the, the disinhibition, the calming, the chattiness, you know, the improved mood, all of these stem mostly from its effect as a GABA agonist. And as another one, NMDA antagonist, which is N-methyldiaspartate, another receptor, which is that receptor is excitotoxic. So anything that mm -hmm. inhibits it calms you down. Magnesium is perhaps the strongest natural NMDA antagonist followed by ethanol. So they this company looked and said, okay, we don't have to take alcohol because it has a lot of other bad effects. Can we do the exact same effects with something else? And they said, GABA. Let's just, you know, they don't disclose what the dosage is, but I've now, I that I know that a human studies with it, even 100 milligrams of oral GABA was enough to lower uh, the assessments of, of patients with anxiety and depression disorders to lower their, their score on whatever assessment worksheet it's being used. I think it's called the Beck's depression scale is for, is for depression. And there's another one for anxiety. Just 100 milligrams of GABA was sufficient to lower significantly the score on both scales. And combining with another GABA agonist, amino acid known as L-theanine, which is found in tea, actually mm -hmm. drastically increased the effect. So they synergized. Is theanine um, a GABA agonist? Is that what you're saying? It is a GABA agonist, yes. Oh, and geez. theanine lowers the levels of serotonin in the brain. 
So wow. Perhaps the most direct evidence that serotonin in the brain is not good in elevated levels. Jeez. So what, what is the range on the doses? I mean, you said it, or it worked at 100 milligrams, but and I'm specifically concerned about people who are taking massive amounts of antidepressants, SSRI specifically, anti-anxiety agents and sleeping pills, which is a tough, you know, my girlfriend's sister was on this and I basically weaned her off of everything except still some of the sleeping pills. So what, what's your what's your strategy or recommendation? This? So for people that are on antidepressants, one of the first things that I would do is go to the doctor and ask about two drugs that are approved for treating depression, but are non-serotonergic. In fact, the here is the proof that serotonin is probably not good for you. Both of these drugs are anti-serotonergic. One of the drugs is called myanserin, also known as mirtazapine. And if you look at the structure, it's very structurally similar to a drug called cyproheptadine, which mm. is a non-selective serotonin antagonist. Myanserin or metazapine are approved, uh, is approved for treating depression in the United States. You want to angry, you want to get your psychiatrist angry, please ask him or her to explain how come an anti-serotonin drug is approved for depression, <laughs> considering that all the other pro-serotonin drugs are also approved for depression. Something doesn't add up there. Another drug is called tyaneptine. Well, wait, before works. we go there, just yeah. to spin this up on cyproheptadine, because I mean, I'm, it's wonderful. It's a, a, a serotonin antagonist, but it does have some side effects. It's, it's basically a sleeping pill too. It'll put you to sleep and maybe you don't even, I think it comes as low as 2.5 milligrams, but you know, if you don't have problems sleeping, you don't want to take a 2.5, you cut it in half or even a quarter because it, it, and I, and I think it's somewhat like, I mean, I tried it once. I, I think everyone should have some cyproheptadine because it's a, such a potent histamine blocker. So mm -hmm. that if you get a bee sting or, you know, something where you have a severe allergic reaction, it's probably a pretty good drug to take for a short term, but it does definitely impair your sleep and you wake up kind of feeling drugged when you're taking yep. cyproheptadine. Yep. So, so I was just comparing, I mean, to, because cyproheptadine is agreed that it's a serotonin antagonist. My answer is a very, a very close structure analog. And even though medicine tries to dance around the, the mechanism of action of myanserin, it's very hard to deny. And in fact, even the Wikipedia page says that this myanserin is also a non-specific serotonin antagonist, but they claim its antidepressant effect comes from something called SS, uh, SRNE, selective norepinephrine re reuptake inhibitor. So it increases mm -hmm. the decreases the uptake of nor norepinephrine, and that's its antidepressant effect. I think it's the fact that it's actually a very good serotonin blocker that is the... the <laughs> The effect, and there's another drug called tyaneptine, which is actually works in a manner 180 degrees to the SS to the SSRIs. Tyaneptine tyaneptine is a drug known as SSRE. It's a selective serotonin reuptake enhancer, mm. potent antidepressant. So just the existence of tyaneptine uh, and its mechanism of action. Uh, and then the existence of the SSRI drugs and the claims that they're associated with them, something here does not add up in regards to serotonin. If 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 you can't have two drugs that work in exactly opposite way, both working for depression, unless there are other mechanisms of action at play. And for tyanapine, there is no other mechanism of action. So it's basically a, an anti-serotonergic drug. So anyways, if somebody's on antidepressants and if they, if they are SSRI antidepressants, my advice is to go to your doctor. First one is get on something that's non-serotonergic. There are pharmacological options available if you prefer to go that route. However, you don't have you don't really have to go that route. And taking GABA, higher doses of GABA on the range of 500 milligrams to two grams daily has been shown to relieve the anxiety and the insomnia of people who are already taking SSRI drugs. Ironically, Elevated serotonin is actually probably the cause of the insomnia, even though doctors try to blame it on the depression. Every single anti-serotonin drug 
ever tested and most of them are not approved for human use but i can send you at least 20 of them every single one of them no matter how selective serotonin antagonist or how unselected serotonin antagonist is has demonstrated both antidepressant and prosomnic basically uh, anti-insomnic effects in animal studies and some human studies as well so serotonin is known to actually cause insomnia and people will be thinking well how if serotonin is precursor to melatonin how can it actually cause problems with the sleep serotonin is the most potent activator in the body of the release of cortisol um wow and, i didn't yeah, realize that through acth and in fact the first antidepressant drug prozac which is a classic ssri drug mm -hmm. uh it there are there are publications about it that the way prozac works is because prozac is a partial serotonin antagonist and it blocks specifically the serotonin receptor responsible for the release of cortisol and that is the serotonin receptor qc c is in charlie 5ht2c prozac is a potent inhibitor of that receptor while maintaining the re rest of its serotonergic effect so it really it's the perfect cover up right you can claim that serotonin is great for your depression while in reality you're given a drug that is blocking the effects of serotonin and lowering cortisol but it, you know, it's unknown to, to most people that have, even doctors that I've discussed it with. So if you take higher doses of GABA, another side effect of GABA is that GABA increases the degradation rate of serotonin, um, even when it's when it's taken orally. So you cannot have high of both. So people that are high in GABA, they're usually low on serotonin. They're very calm. They're very gregarious. And people who are high on serotonin, it's not a happiness hormone. Multiple studies, in fact, even a court case recently agreed that serotonin actually destroys empathy, love, and wisdom. Those are specific quotes from the case study. Um, from sorry, from the court study. And another animal study found that crabs exposed uh, in in um, to very low levels of SSRIs because of the sewage that's dump, being dumped into the ocean. So they're getting exposed to 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 amounts a thousand times lower than we are when taking these drugs. The crabs turn extremely violent, homicidal, and cannibalistic. They turn on each other. There's nothing else that can explain this behavior except that the SSRI, except for the SSRI drugs. So really, that's that's what serotonin does. It's a metabolic inhibitor. And the recent study that came out of Oxford that said seroto the serotonin hypothesis of depression is dead. We need to, to move away from it. One of the lines there was that we've been looking at serotonin the wrong way. The primary role of serotonin is metabolic. It's a metabolic inhibitor. And the reason that the evolutionary role of serotonin is probably as a for numbing pain when you're under stress. Mm. So it turns off your sort of like your pain reaction, your, your, even your grief reaction, but the expense of also turning off all the other emotions as well. Uh, multiple studies demonstrated that serotonin is basically a lobotomizing chemical when it comes to emotions. Sure, it will numb your depression, but it will also numb everything else too. You will be walking around like a zombie. So serotonin, as I mentioned earlier, is primarily produced in the gut by I think 95% of it. And it was initially called enteramine because that's where, where they found it. So I think, believe there's some similarity between serotonin and endotoxin and that it increases inflammation. And obviously I didn't realize that it was a, a cortisol agonist, <laughs> really not a good thing. So why don't you talk about some of the other downsides of serotonin and why you don't ever, ever, ever want to consider a drug that's designed to increase your serotonin levels. So one of the earliest studies with serotonin was done uh, on people with so-called carcinoid syndrome. Um, uh, it's a very specific type of brain, of tumor that, that's developed in the enteric nervous system. Um, and then these people are known to have, uh, uh, very often they have face flushing. Uh, mm -hmm. They have uh, chronics, a very severe diarrhea. And both of these things are known to be caused by serotonin. 
but then they started looking at uh you know at other conditions associated with things like uh, and by the way these people with the carcinoma syndrome they don't die from the tumor they die from disseminated and massive fibrosis so mm. for a long time people didn't know what exactly is causing this fibrosis but then they narrowed it down to serotonin Mm -hmm. uh, specifically serotonin acting through something called the serotonin receptor 5-HT2B, 2B, uh, B as in boy. Uh, and once they realized that this receptor, which serotonin activates, of course, is causing the, the fibrosis, some antifibrotic drugs started to be developed. Um, and one of the uh, one of the more potent ones currently in clinical trials is a ergot derivative known as tergoride. Um, and tergoride is a very potent 5-HT2B blocker. Conversely, some of the older drugs that are being that were used that, for that, that, that drug is still in clinical trials. It's not available by yet. Pfizer. Yeah, Pfizer bought the rights and removed it from the market, uh, and it's running clinical trials for cardiac fibrosis and for pulmonary fibrosis, both of which are invariably lethal and considered incurable. So yeah. it's an admission that, that serotonin causes both of these conditions. That, the that is just beyond extraordinary because the cardiac fibrosis is a real common contributor to heart to, heart failure, which is a pervasive in the United States population. So any strategy that's going to reduce the primary precipitate of fibrosis like serotonin would be good to do. So you you know take it putting put it on an antidepressant is going to accelerate your your antidepressant that increases serotonin will accelerate that process. And yep. pulmonary fibrosis is just as bad if not worse and typically terminal. Yeah, cystic fibrosis too. Recently they discovered it's also driven by serotonin. Anytime wow. you hear the word fibrosis oh, could, you, could you put obviously cystic fibrosis is a genetic disease. It's a bad luck of the draw. Could you put someone on a strong anti-serotonin GABA agonist and progesterone and that would, it seems like it would be a good strategy to keep them healthier longer. In fact, the combination of GABA and progesterone would probably be enough because progesterone is also a TPH inhibitor. It inhibits the enzyme that synthesizes serotonin, which probably explains together with progesterone's GABA effects, why progesterone has antidepressant effects when it was being tried in both animals and humans. So just progesterone at a higher dose is both anti-serotonergic and pro-GABA, and both mechanisms, by the way, the being pro-GABA is not only calming it down, but also increases the degradation of serotonin. So progesterone both in inhibits the synthesis of serotonin and increases its degradation. And similar effects are seen in some of the androgenic steroids, such as testosterone, and especially dihydrotestosterone, which cannot aromatize, so it's probably safer. Wow. This, this is huge. It's, because it's interesting. I mean, we're talking about two radically different subjects, serotonin and estrogen, but there's so many similarities between the two. Serotonin activates aromatase and estrogen activates tryptophan hydroxylase. So they really like each other. One cannot yeah. go without the other. Yeah, they're, they're bad news bears, both of them. And you really want to minimize both. Keep your serotonin levels as low as possible as long as your estrogen levels. And, and the solution is interestingly, uh, there's many commonalities in that progesterone, pregnenolone, and GABA itself would be good strategies for both of those. Yeah, so probably the easiest thing will be for to find oral GABA and if it, uh, make sure it's a clean supplement. And I don't see any any uh, downsides to taking even very high doses. Make sure just make sure you're taking it with what, food. What, what do you qualify as a high dose? Two grams uh, or more? I mean, you can. I mean, it's an it's an amino acid. The, and by the way, uh, if you if you take too much of it, some of it will get deaminated and get converted to something called succinic acid, succinic mm -hmm. acid, which that's is a supplement the, actually. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's the, the intermediate of the Krebs cycle. Yeah, so cycle. It, it, that's probably one one way through which GABA boosts mitochondrial function. Oh, geez. I didn't know that was a succinic acid precursor. Wow. That's great. Woo.
So what do you think is the highest dose you can go on? Um, grams, until we release symptoms. Grams. But I've seen people in very severe cases of anxiety and depression uh, plateau at about three to four grams. After okay. that, basically, it starts getting deaminated. And it may have some prometabolic effects, but the mental effects usually plateau at about three to four. Okay. And, and many people are only going to need a half a gram or one gram, right? Well, even 100 milligrams, which was that study with people with right. chronic anxiety and depression. They were diagnosed with official conditions. And the beautiful thing about this, and I, I would just not take a GABA supplement by itself. I would definitely take it with theanine and many of them also mm -hmm. have magnesium, which is really good. Unless you go too high, then of course you're going to get loose stools. But uh, the good thing about these is they're relatively inexpensive. This is not going to seriously impair your yep. budget at all in any way shape or form and they're really easy to find they're all over the place yep yep i have i can count at least 20 vendors selling tianin on amazon uh probably more than 50 selling gaba um you know all of these things and magnesium countless right there's probably not a single vitamin vendor that doesn't sell magnesium somehow yeah but it'd be guess just to take one supplement that combines all of them i will do one after the other take one on the first day by itself see how it affects you really yeah, maybe play with the dosage a little bit. Find out which which one of the supplements works best at what dose. And mm -hmm. then when you start combining them, try to lower the dose of each one and then arrive because they should synergize. So mm -hmm. if, let's say just 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 as an example, if 500 milligrams of GABA by itself is enough to lower your anxiety, 500 milligrams of magnesium by itself is enough to lower your anxiety and improve sleep. And let's say 200 milligrams of, of theanine is enough to cause both of these then maybe 100 milligrams of each combined should be enough. My personal experiment is like that. I actually tried all three and 100 milligrams of each in combination is very, a very good, um, you know, uh, pressure relief valve for me and also improve sleep. Yeah, so there's two subsets of people who will be trying this. Healthy people like you or really sick people who have uh, submitted to the pharmacological paradigm and are taking these drugs. So in my view there's really limited time to have them play with it, especially when you're going to, you, your goal is to increase compliance. So you want to hit them with the kitchen sink initially. So they get yeah. relief and yeah. then work down. So I think what you're doing is perfect. If you're a biohacker and you're healthy, do it singly and increase. But if you're already on taking medications for these conditions, and I think you might just want to shotgun it and then go down from there. I agree. Yeah, take as high doses as it relieves your symptoms. And uh, the, the the main thing to remember is if you're on an SSRI drug, your GABA is by definition low. Serotonin inhibits the is synthesis GABA, of GABA. GABA antagonist. Yes. And also in, in, inhibits its synthesis. You'll be very low on GABA in general, not to wow. mention that serotonin can block the GABA receptor. Really nefarious substance when oh, it comes to GABA. Man, it is, it's worse than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> and... and Maybe review the impacts of serotonin and estrogen on being anti-metabolic and, and the connection between those two items and the thyroid gland. Well, uh, serotonin is derived from tryptophan, and tryptophan is the only amino acid that is known to be directly carcinogenic. Probably why it's found in the lowest amounts of any amino acid, no matter where you look in nature in terms of food or any kind of a you know protein composition. Uh, so it's an, it's an essential amino acid, but it's one yeah. that you would should not take as a supplement. Yes. Uh, it caused actual deaths. If you remember in the early 90s, oh, yeah. there was this thing yeah. called the- I think it was late late 80s. Late okay. 80s. It was eosinophilic myalgia syndrome. Yeah. Right. And they blamed it on impurities. Uh, yeah, that, but, that if, right. but if you look at the symptoms of those people, they all died from serotonin syndrome, classic signs of serotonin syndrome. 
Uh, yeah, needless to say, if you have high serotonin, it can kill you directly. In fact, medicine has a special term for it. It's called serotonin syndrome. Recently, they discovered that the so-called post-surgery delirium, which many patients experience, or post-anesthesia delirium, is actually due to, it's a, it's a mild form of serotonin syndrome, and cyproheptadine completely stops it. Um, so, so, so serotonin and tryptophan are actually thyroid inhibitors. Um, it, it, multiple studies have demonstrated that injecting tryptophan or serotonin into the blood raises the levels of, D, of TSH, which is a sign that thyroid gland function has been inhibited, or something is going on at uh, maybe increased degradation of thyroid hormone because the body perceives the presence of these two amines um, as, as, as an anti-thyroid signal. So it amps up its own production of thyroid. Um, uh, things that serotonin also does, it blocks the activity of the enzyme pyruvate, pyruvate dehydrogenase. So you're going to get into basically excessive glycolysis and high levels of lactic acid situation. Uh, another 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 situation where you're shifting towards the redox state towards reduction. Serotonin itself is a reductant. Um, so Ooh, I so, didn't know that. <laughs> uh, yeah, and just like estrogen, so 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 is cortisol. Yeah, they're both reductants. Yeah. Jeez. So so these all of these steroids and uh, and amines and neurotransmitters are basically anti-metabolic simply by interfering with the proper with the proper flow of of electrons from food to oxygen. Um, so estrogen also is known to inhibit the uh, work of pyruvate dehydrogenase, also inhibitor directly of cytochrome C oxidase. And I think it's an inhibitor of also complex two of the electron transport chain, which is now also known as succinic acid dehydrogenase, which also participates in the Krebs cycle. So estrogen can inhibit all of these. And again, it makes it sound like these are very toxic and bad things, but they're there for a reason. And, and the revolutionary reason is probably that in times of stress and trouble and injury and whatnot, these things rise in order to help you repair, mm -hmm. yeah. but it should be acute only. And, and unfortunately, yeah. these days we have them chronically elevated, and that's a signal to the body that things are chronically bad, and it will dispose of, of any known um, essential function that it thinks it can do in order to conserve energy, which means your high metabolism, which means you're gaining weight, means your good mood, which means you're going to be depressed, right? And eventually, if things go down that route, the body will start turning off non-essential organs, if you think that they are some, by turning them into fibrotic clumps of meat and so that they don't have to waste energy on repairing them. And that's how you get fibrosis. And ultimately, the end stage of fibrosis is invariably cancer, unless you die from the organ failure before that. Yeah. So again, further proof that serotonin and estrogen are precursors of cancer. So you mentioned earlier that serotonin is the precursor for melatonin. So we yep. need some of that. Yes. So how do you reconcile that? Is that my guess is it's just because it's a relatively small level of serotonin you need to make adequate melatonin mm -hmm. and you don't need anything excess. That there's always a basal level that will produce an optimal amount of melatonin and anything extra is going to be detrimental. Is it, what's, your, what's your take so on it? So healthy levels, uh, healthy people have been demonstrated to have high levels of melatonin and medicine has used that as an excuse to start advocating for, for supplementation with melatonin. But uh, what, what we need to keep in mind is that if you take melatonin, it has a, basically a, a, a reverse feedback, negative feedback oh, effect. Oh, I didn't And it's really. going to raise your serotonin. And it's very well-known oh, side effect. Will. Yes. I mean, I, I talked to Russell Ryder, who's probably the world's foremost researcher in melatonin, and he never mentioned that at all. That, oh. But that, that is 
I did not realize that, but it makes perfect sense. Very easy way to prove it. Take a hefty dosage of melatonin, which means three milligrams or more, and just watch what kind of bizarre nightmares are you going to have oh. that night. <laughs> <laughs> and the nightmare driver is serotonin, and that's being recognized by psychiatry because now it's doing clinical trials with cyproheptadine to cure a very, very pernicious sign of PTSD, which is chronic recurring nightmares. Uh, and another sign that probably PTSD is driven by serotonin as well. <laughs> wow. That's pretty crazy. So any other insights to share with serotonin and estrogen that you'd like to conclude with? Um, so basically, since you mentioned endotoxin and most of oh, serotonin yeah. is produced in the gut, uh, keeping the bowel clean, uh, keeping bowel transit uh, rapid and frequent uh, without getting to diarrhea case, obviously, because then you're interfering with absorption of the nutrients. Uh, why? Because anytime you overproduce endotoxin, by it acts on the something called the enterochromaffin cells, which are lining the intestine. And those cells are the main factories for producing serotonin. So endotoxin, by activating a receptor and just mechanically irritating those cells, uh, it's a signal for these cells to start producing serotonin. Things that mechanically injure the intestine or stresses such as stretching, bouncing around, uh, are also probably not beneficial. And in fact, there's this thing called runner's diarrhea. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, and you know, it's a mystery of why it occurs. But now that we know that serotonin causes diarrhea and running for extended periods of time, the, all this bouncing and stretching and twisting of the intestine causes mechanical irritation and these cells start to overproduce serotonin. So clearly mm. not a good situation. Long-distance runners are also known to have higher levels of peritoneal and pulmonary fibrosis, wow. both of which are known to be caused by serotonin. Did not know that. So glad I stopped running about 20 years ago. <laughs> I, I mean, you can run, but don't get it to the point where, where people are, you know, killing themselves. So you, sh you should, I think the, the good thing is to keep it so-called, I call it glycogen bound. Once you deplete the glycogen uh, yeah, and you start getting into fatty acid synthesis, then, 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 the, you know, the problems start. Yeah. And actually that's the strategy for many seriously competitive uh, long distance endurance uh, athletes is that they focus on that. Their specific training is to increase their ability to, for, to utilize fat and increase beta oxidation that is as, as their primary fuel source. And I just interviewed Tim Noakes from South Africa, who actually wrote books on this thing. He's a big low carb proponent. And I shared with him some of the stuff and he just kind of reverted back to Richard Veith, who interestingly, I'm sure you're familiar with Veith, who passed away a few years ago, but he was not a fan of high fat diets. I did not realize that. He just, he was okay with ketones. And, and interestingly, I, 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 I forget where I was. I was watching a podcast that was discussing this, but it seems like ketones by themselves are actually pretty good fuel. Yep. Unless your body is making them. And if your body is making ketones and you have activated the stress pathways, exactly. you don't want to do that. But but you can take exogenous ketones to help. And do you think do you think there would be any benefit to taking them at night? Uh, first of all, ketones, which since we talked about GABA, uh, as you well know, there's this infamous ketogenic diet for for intractable epilepsy, which is how mm -hmm. I think the initially ketogenic diet started becoming popular in the mainstream. They started using this as an excuse to do the ketogenic diet. Ketones, especially when produced from saturated fatty acids, are GABA agonists. And some mm. of the most some of the most effective drugs for epilepsy, such as valproic acid, are also GABA agonists. Uh, so yes, that's how the ketones are good for you, especially for the brain. 
but the brain cannot go for an extended period of time on ketones only. It prefers sugar. And mm -hmm. that's why even the ketogenic diet for epilepsy, it's done in a metabolic ward. They constantly monitor them. Usually children are, are being put on this diet. And after about three months, basically, uh, until the child starts responding to the medications, then they stop the ketogenic diet. I don't know. If I mean, I've talked to several doctors who are administering these diets in the metabolic wards. None of them is recommending going on this indefinitely. It's all mm -hmm. until you restore your metabolic state, in other words, or your sensitivity to medication, and then they, they wean you off of that diet. So taking ketones is actually is very beneficial because they also shift the, the redox balance. I know we've been repeating this all this so many times. Back to oxidation. One of the most beneficial of them you can take is something called acetoacetate. Mm. Um, and basically, that's uh, a key? isn't that a ketone? I think that's a ketone, exactly. Yeah. And and another one which is not so good for you is, is known as beta hydroxybutyrate. Yeah, in fact, problem. it's not a ketone; it's the reduced form of acetoacetate. And I did not know that. Are you serious? I'm very serious. And the ratio of acetoacetate to beta hydroxybutyrate is the same ratio as pyruvate to lactate, as GSSG to GSH, and then, cortisol and they, to cortisol. Yeah. NAD, NADH. NAD to NADH, yes. So if you take acetoacetate, it's as if you're taking NAD plus to shift or niacinamide to shift the, NA, wow. the redox ratio towards oxidation. Wow, I'm glad I, I pivoted to that. But, you know, most people who have been studying Pete's work, and you would be the classic illustration of that, understand and would not dispute that pretty much every healthy human being, once they've able to resolve metabolic inflexibility, needs about 150 grams of carbohydrate a day at a yep. minimum. Yep. If you got a lot of activity, like I do, I frequently go up to 500 grams a day. So anyone who's taking that an appropriate amount of carbohydrates is getting enough carbs. So that's not an issue. I'm wondering if you believe there is an additional benefit of taking a ketone like acetoacetate. And if so, would the best time be before bed? Um, well, because they're GABA agonists and I've taken acetoacetate, it does make you sleepy. Uh, probably depending on the dosage, it's probably uh, uh, reasonable to take them before bed or at least try them before mm -hmm. bed and then see how they affect you. And if you're not groggy the next morning, maybe you can try taking some during the day. But just but like anything that shifts the redox balance towards oxidation, it helps you metabolize the carbs. So by taking the ketones, you're probably you're going to be able to get by on less carbs. So you don't have to wow. eat as many carbs. And in fact, you're going to be metabolizing them better. So you'll produce more carbon dioxide. In other words, your caloric intake requirements, at least for carbs, may actually decrease. Uh, maybe a reason one of the, a reason why some people have noticed that if they're taking ketones, they can actually lose some weight without changing their dietary regimens or exercise regimens much. So yes, I think there is a benefit to taking ketones. Um, and But to me, it's not very different than taking... Uh, methylene blue or GABA agonist or, okay. you know, or, or, or niacinamide and right. anything that makes you um, utilize oxygen more properly. Okay. Or the, or the new uh, alcohol-free <laughs> drinks that they have. That are <laughs> well, that's fun. It sounds fun. You know what? Yeah. I'll, I'll buy a bottle and maybe if we meet each other in person, we'll share yeah, it. There we go. Right before bed. Yeah. So um, you had mentioned carbon dioxide. And for those who don't know, one of the, or I'm just going to review it. One of the benefits of, of oxidizing glucose in the mitochondria is it gives you two huge byproducts. You, well, three, three things are going. You radically, you, you're, you're contributing to forward electron flow, which is uh, minimizing reductive stress. But also you are, you're, you're production, the minimizing reductive stress means that you're, you have 30 to 40 times less production of ROS. But the cool thing is, is that you're making two metabolic byproducts. One is metabolic water or deuterium depleted water. And the other is carbon dioxide. So 
you know, there's a lot of confusions. I don't think we went over in the past, maybe we did, but nitric oxide and carbon dioxide. Now nitric oxide is considered a vasodilator and there are many, many products and therapies designed around increasing nitric oxide. But that seems to be a fool's errand and maybe highly, highly counterproductive when the ideal strategy you want to do is increase carbon dioxide because it's a far more effective and safer vasodilator. It's the main endogenous beneficial sort of well, it's the default vasodilator, uh, which prevents, first of all, it allows the 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 blood vessels to dilate, but also what carbon dioxide does is in the process of getting released from the cell through simple diffusion, because it's a Lewis acid, it draws excess calcium with itself outside of the cell. So it decalcifies mm. your soft tissues. Uh, and and in the the Soviets had a, like an, an extensive research done with it in the sixties and seventies. They had these wow. resorts where you can go and you can bathe in these bathtubs filled with carbon dioxide as a as a way to reverse or at least retard the development of cardiovascular disease or at the very wow. least hypertension. Um, so cardiovascular uh, carbon dioxide is your main and preferred vasodilator. If you don't have it for whatever reason, which means your metabolism is not working well, the emergency one that immediately activates this, the, just the deficiency of carbon dioxide is a signal for the activation of something called inducible nitric oxide synthase, INOS, and it starts producing nitric oxide as the, as the emergency vasodilator. This is what happens actually if you do long distance running to the point where you stop producing sufficient amounts of carbon dioxide because of anaerobic glycolysis. In other words, you're running so much, just the, just the uh, energy uh, production process cannot catch up. Then carbon dioxide levels decline and then basically you get vasodilation because of nitric oxide and that contributes to the flushing and the redness of your skin and your face when you're running for too for too long. Histamine is also a factor, but carbon dioxide basically increases the synthesis of histamine for histidine. So they really mm. go go together. But carbon dioxide, I'm sorry, nitric oxide is what's really driving a lot of that flushing and redness that you're getting when you're uh, kind of overexerting yourself. Um, so, so nitric oxide, even though it is a vasodilator, as I mentioned earlier, a very nefarious effect effect of it is that can form a covalent bone with cytochrome c oxidase so you can get permanently metabolically inhibited in specific cells well doesn't mean it die but even though it can kill you in fact it's now being proposed as a to replace the 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 basically the euthanasia drugs and the and and the and the death penalty drugs in the united states and several european countries because you breathe it in and you basically uh, you drop dead without even realizing it, and it's considered more humane. So in high amounts, carbon um, uh, nitric oxide is not that different from carbon monoxide mm -hmm. in the fact that it can bind irreversibly with some of the metabolic uh, with the with the respiratory enzymes, um, and that's by that's the process through which it kills in the high doses. Well, is, is it truly in a, uh, irreversible? And you're talking about uh, complex four, right? Yeah. Uh, but I thought it could be dissociated, even though it's a covalent. Okay, bond, I should say irreversible. Red it's, light, exactly. red light, and methylene blue. Yes. And so does carbon carbon monoxide. For a long time, it was thought yeah. it's irreversibly binding, but methylene blue can do it. In fact, methylene blue is used as antidote to carbon monoxide poisoning. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's why I think everyone should have some methylene blue at home, just in case you get an accidental exposure to carbon monoxide. Yep. Uh, or cyanide poisoning, in case your spouse decides to take you out prematurely. Yep. So nitric oxide, so in addition to being a metabolic inhibitor, it's also uh, toxic to, to living tissue and living to living organisms. Its main function, second main function, other than the emergency vasodilator, is killing foreign pathogens. 
One of the first things that happens when you get a viral or bacterial or even fungal infection is that your white blood cells, a subset of them, start producing and releasing massive amounts of nitric oxide as a way to kill off these pathogens, it's, which is the reason why when you get endotoxin into the bloodstream, you're also getting a, a hefty dosage of nitric oxide release because this portion, the endotoxin fragment in your bloodstream is interpreted by, by the immune system the same way as if you had a bacterial infection because it is a portion of the bacterial wall. So nitric oxide is actually toxic. And the, the, the best example is that it's being used to kill invading cells that are not your cells. Um, recent study, I don't know if you saw on my blog just a few days ago, demonstrated that nitric oxide is so toxic to the brain that just giving precursors to nitric oxide can reproduce all of the signs of autism. And giving things. Oh that, yes, that was great. I sent it to. I'm speaking at an autism event next month, and I sent it to the organizer. Yeah, and and inhibiting the synthesis of nitric oxide or blocking its effects mm -hmm. can actually reverse all of the signs that they were able to notice for autism. Metal in blue can directly scavenge nitric oxide, which is great, and can also inhibit its synthesis through by inhibition of inos. Niacinamide, very good inos inhibitor. Magnesium, very good inos inhibitor. Progesterone and GABA, both of them. Very good inos inhibitors. Now, you, you, there are three enzymes that make nitric oxide. Inos is the one you've been referring to, but there's also two others: NOS, which is neuronal nitric oxide, and the endothelial, and, yeah, and then ENOS. Yeah. So, is there a? There's got to be a role, an appropriate physiological role, where some low level of nitric oxide performs a beneficial physiological function. Yeah, the enos and the enos, they do synthesize it, but it's usually basically, like I said, in response to perceived deficiency of carbon dioxide. Now, even okay. those can actually get, but they are very tightly controlled. The majority of the pathological levels of nitric oxide can come from, uh, only come from enos. Okay. Uh, that's why I, I think there are drugs even that have been tried to inhibit specifically enos and enos, and they didn't, they didn't notice the same benefit as the things that specifically inhibited enos. Okay, I know this is the bad one. You do not want to activate that puppy at all. Oh my gosh. Now I just have to digest this. <laughs> I didn't resynthesize my health program. <laughs> but this is, this is fantastic. It is really extraordinary. You provided such important, fundamental, foundational strategies to treat some very, very common, pervasive challenges that most people watching this are going through or their friends or family are. So I can't thank you enough for guiding us through this and confirming some, some really solid information that I think will help a lot of people. You are incredible. Thank you. One last piece of, of evidence against nitric oxide. There is a molecule that's used clinically to inhibit the synthesis of nitric oxide. It's known as L-name. L-nitro. L-name. L-name. Like, because it's the L-isomer. Okay. So uh, N as in Nancy, A, M as in Mary, E. Uh, okay. L nitro arginine methyl ether. Okay. Uh, and it basically it 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 uh, it it because it's structurally similar to arginine, it fills into that enzyme that synthesizes nitric oxide and results in lower levels of nitric oxide. It's currently in clinical trials, I think in several European countries for treating cancer, even very advanced cases of cancer. Uh, yet another direct example that uh, you know nitric oxide contributes to that and probably through its role as a metabolic inhibitor. Well, I Deeply, deeply appreciate you carving time on your schedule to help us review these really important topics. And uh, people want to find more. I think, I mean, 
you were in Bulgaria for a month, I think, at least. And when you're traveling, you tend not to post on your blog, although you're still reading the articles, but your posting goes down. So there wasn't a bunch of posts for a month. But uh, I think you got to be out of your mind if you really enjoy health and you want the latest to not subscribe to your blog. It's really easy. It's uh, heydut.me, H-A-I-D-U-T.me. And uh, you know, you'll get the latest in there. And then you say, I think your Twitter account is the yeah. same number, right? Just blog, the blog feeds directly into the Twitter. And I use Twitter for like discussions occasionally with people. I had a few classes with doctors recently about nitric oxide. I don't know if you saw that. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. I don't, I don't go on Twitter at all for the most part. <laughs> and you're right to do that. It can be a very toxic environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I just, I choose consciously not to do that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have, I love RSS feeds. I think that's the, one of the best IT innovations. And it's really surprising, almost shocking that it was never widely adopted. It's such a powerful IT tool. And you, you, you know, people who are in IT, they understand it, but it was just, I mean, Google had a really one of the best RSS feeders, but they got rid of it, you know, probably some other nefarious reasons, but all the good things disappear. Yeah, <laughs> we just, yeah. It's called the crapification of the economy. There's an article in the yeah. Economist about that. Yeah. So anyway, it's been great. All right. Well, thank you, Georgie. Well, thanks very much for inviting me. Uh, you know, looking forward to uh, more discussions.